pastor comes at this time to open the word. One day he's coming. What a glorious day that will be for sure. And we say often, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I don't think any of us would be disappointed if that day were today. If he were to come back, uh, even before we finished our service this morning, that would be absolutely okay. Nobody would have a problem with that. So one day, maybe it will be today. We do know that it will be someday. We just don't know the day. And so um, let's not get fixated on what day it's going to be. Let's just get fixated on doing what we should be doing until that day comes, right? Serving our great God and, and telling others about who he is. This may be the shortest sermon title I've ever come up with. Okay? It's called Stones. Stones. Okay? Uh, but first of all, let me again say to you, Happy New Year. Uh, and, and this is a very fitting sermon for New Year's, the first Sunday after New Year's. Um, because it's going to call us to a commitment. It's going to call us to do something that we see here in the pages of Scripture. We're jumping back into our study in First Peter. So if you have not opened your Bible yet to First Peter, we're going to be in chapter 2 this morning. Let me encourage you to do that. First Peter chapter 2. Uh, and as we get here in First Peter chapter 2, I'm just going to spend a few minutes reviewing because it has been... Uh, several weeks since we were here in First Peter chapter 2. In fact, all the way back to November 14th, uh, before, when, since we were last looking at First Peter. I want to spend some time, excuse me, reminding you what we talked about then, since our, our minds have probably been filled with many other things since November 14th, right? Chapter 2 begins with quite a difficult challenge, all right, Peter reminds his readers, and as followers of Jesus, we, you and I, should take up this challenge. We should be willing to accept the challenge that Peter lays down here. And in reality, this challenge is that Peter calls us to Christ-likeness. He wants us to become more and more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. And there's five things here in the opening verses of chapter 2 that Peter commands us to put off. Now, let me remind you what it means to put off, okay? Most of you know that I kind of like to make things or fix things. And in my garage, there are lots of different uh, tools that help me make things or fix things. Many of those tools, though, when I use them, make me dirty, okay? And there's times when I will open the kitchen door coming in from the garage and Barb will say, that's it, no further, because I'm full of sawdust or wood shavings or grease. And she says, you're not coming in here looking like that. And so I have to take, usually it's a coat that I have on. I have to take that off. Some, if it's warm, it's a, it's a shirt. So I have to take that off or whatever. But she says, you, you got to take that off. You're not coming in here and getting the house all dirty with leaving behind the stuff that you have on your clothes. So I literally take my clothes off in the garage before I can come in the house. I put it off. That's what Paul or that's what Peter wants us to understand. We literally must put it off. 
There's an action required on our part to get rid of that which makes us dirty, that which makes us unclean. Get rid of them. Now, most of the time, they can just be shook, shaken, shook, whatever, uh, waved around in the air so the dust and dirt come off of it, uh, and then put in the washing machine, and it gets clean. Every once in a while, like when I was working on the chimney over at the parsonage, and you know that black stuff that you paint on the chimney, uh, it's not meant to come off. And it doesn't come off clothes, and it doesn't come off pants, and it really doesn't come off tools. So some of that stuff, you just have to throw it away or put it someplace so that, because you know you're not finished with that project yet, you're going to have to get back to it, and so you wear the same stuff. But you put it off, you get rid of it, you don't want to have anything to do with it. She's gracious and often helps me fix my condition. Maybe she'll come out and she'll, I'll turn the air compressor on and she'll use the compressor and she'll blow all the stuff off of me or she'll get a broom and she'll sweep it off or, or whatever. But you see, I can't always fix the problem myself. That's the problem with sin. We can't fix it ourselves. We need help to get past that problem. And you know, we celebrated the Lord's table this morning and that's the help we need. The shed blood of Jesus Christ makes it possible so that we can put these things off. Now remember, Peter's writing to believers here. He's writing to followers of Jesus and he says, there are things that you need to put off. So as Christians, we've not quite arrived yet and we won't arrive till we reach the shores of heaven. Okay, so it's a constant battle for us in our walk to become more and more like Christ. And Peter lists five things that he says in the Christian life, you have to put these things off. The first thing he talks about is malice. And we're just going to review these quickly, at least most of them. Malice is wickedness. It's almost as if it's the thought of intentional wickedness. You're seeking to figure out how you can do somebody wrong, how you can hurt them. It might fall under the realm of getting even. As Christians, that's not something that we should be consumed with. We should not be trying to figure out how we can get even with somebody for something they did to us. Okay, Put it away. Get rid of it. Don't let it be part of your life. He also says deceit. Deceit is guile or slyness. You might remember we used the illustration of a person who traps animals with things that are designed for that very purpose, to catch an animal so that you can actually be very diabolical to the animal. You can put it to death and you can skin it. You can either get rid, use its pelt or you can eat the food or whatever. Most of the time uh, we do it so we can eat whatever it is that we catch. We don't just do it just for the sake of doing it, although Satan does. He does it for the sake of just getting us to, to sin and be miserable and aggravated and frustrated. So this idea of deceitfulness is you disguise the trap so it's not easily noticed. And you put it in the best possible place so that you might catch what you're looking for. Satan is the same way. He disguises the sin that he's trying to entice you with. He makes you think, oh, if I just could do this or have this or, you know. So you're thinking about yourself and how beneficial it will be for you. And you, next thing you know, you're living and doing sin. And, and Satan doesn't put a big sign on it and says, this is sin. There's no warning label on it. He makes it look good. He makes it look fun. But in the end, its sting is bitter and powerful. Peter says, put off hypocrisy. 
This idea of hypocrisy is being utterly devoid of sincerity, not being genuine. And that's a problem. In fact, you know, in Christianity, that's one of the things that we take uh, great steps to try to prevent. We don't like it when somebody's being a hypocrite, right? So we need to, first of all, make sure that it's not part of my own life. I need to make sure I'm not being a hypocrite. I can't, I can't help somebody become victorious over it if I'm struggling with it or if I'm living in it. So Peter says, put off hypocrisy. The next one he lists is envy, and that's lusting after another's good fortune and blessings. You see, something like uh, you like it, you want it, you devise a plan to get it, and no matter who it might hurt, no matter what it might cost, no matter what the harm might be, you pursue it to have it for yourself. So he says, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy. The last one he lists here is evil speaking. The idea of evil speaking here has to do with our talk. As believers, we need to be sure that our speech reflects our new nature. Occasionally, I'll come across those that call themselves followers of Jesus, but their speech is not necessarily indicative of their salvation. And unfortunately, we have a segment of Christianity that excuses that kind of behavior away as it's all, it's all right. It's okay to still use the curse words that you used to use. It's okay to still use the vulgar language that you once used. It's okay to talk uh, in, in innuendos, in idioms, in things that are much like the world. Can I tell you something? The Bible says that we are new creatures in Christ. Once we come to know Jesus as our Savior. And I believe that God saves all of us, including the tongue. So, as a child of God, it should be my desire not to speak like the world speaks. Not to speak like I used to speak before I knew Christ as my Savior. And I don't care what popular person on the TV or the radio tells you, it's okay. In fact, some of them even, pre- even curse when they're preaching. You're right. No, that's not right. That's not what God ordained for us. When God says that we are a new creature in Christ, it includes our tongue. You and I need to make sure that our tongues, whether it's in the actual words that we say, or, or the communication, or the conversation that comes out of our mouth, it needs to be edifying, it needs to be glorifying to God. James deals with this in his book that he writes You know, the half-brother of Jesus, somebody who was close to our Savior, he says this, the tongue, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who were made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. When I played baseball in South Africa, um, I remember, you know, they all knew that I was a pastor, because, you know, first of all, you're an American, yeah, what are you doing here? Well, I'm pastoring a church. We started a church, and I'm the pastor of that church. And so uh, most of the guys were, were aware of that and conscious of that and tried to adapt their behavior when I was around. But there were some younger kids that played on the team, and we were warming up, playing catch back and forth. Um, and uh, Brian and I were standing at one end, and the younger kid was standing at the other end, and we were throwing back and forth to him. Uh, and he was telling us something, and he was just cursing a blue streak. 
I mean, like every other word was, was a swear word. And so finally, Brian put his glove down and put his ball down, and he says, hey, do you kiss your mother with that same mouth? And he looked at him, and then he says, do you eat with that mouth? And he said, well, yeah. He says, well, don't you know that we have a pastor here? You shouldn't talk like that. So he was conscious of the, the idea that I didn't appreciate that kind of talk. But you know what? It shouldn't matter if there's a pastor present. Our talk, our speech should be that which would be like the speech that Christ uses. If, if Jesus wouldn't say it, we probably shouldn't say it either. It's important for us to work on that in in our Christian life. Would you stand together with me? We're going to read together our passage of Scripture this morning. It's only two verses. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Let's read together from the screen, if you would. 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious... You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we um, have spent some time reviewing um, the character and the conduct, the behavior that should be coming uh, children of God. And sometimes we struggle with these things as children of God, and we're so thankful that we have the opportunity to confess those things to you when we struggle with them and we sin, we confess them, and you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But we're also thankful, Father, that the Holy Spirit lives within us, and as we submit to the Holy Spirit and let him govern our lives, these sinful activities should be less and less apparent in our lives. They should be less and less practiced by those who follow after Jesus Christ. So as we move from this idea of holiness, Christ-likeness, Father, and we move into a different uh, realm this morning and, and we think about what Jesus has done for us and who he is, we ask, Father, that you would encourage our hearts this morning from the pages of Scripture that we study together today. We ask these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So, As I was preparing this sermon this morning, I was trying to decide how long the text should be, okay? There's not a clear break in the passage. Um, Should I I go all the way down to the end of verse 9, or should I cut it back a little bit? I realized that we have communion today, so I just decided verses 4 and 5, okay? So as we're thinking about that, we might end up with a bit shorter of a sermon this morning but don't hold your breath, okay? Um, so as we think about that, and, 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 and we're just going to look at kind of a comparison contrast together this morning of, of stones, okay? We we're talking about two stones here, or two different types of stones here. First of all, in verse 4, we see the divine stone. We see that Jesus Christ is the stone that we're talking about. Um, let, me, let, me, yeah, let me remind you who wrote this book. In fact, you tell me. It's not hard. You look at the very uh, title of the book or the name of the book. What is it? It's First Peter. Who do you think wrote this book? Peter. Okay. Um, can I ask you what Peter's name means? Stone. 
okay, or pebble. All right, so you would think that a guy whose name means stones knows what he's talking about when he's talking about stones, right? Okay, Peter, who, and by the way, that wasn't Peter's original name, was it? Jesus changed it to stone, from Simon to stone, okay? So Jesus gave him this name. He should know a little bit about stones. Well, we'll see if he does as we work our way through the text this morning. Peter says that Jesus is the living stone. He says, you come to him as a living stone, all right? The word living probably brings a couple thoughts to your mind. In the original text here in, in the Greek, the definite article is missing in front of the word or the phrase living stone. Say, okay, so what does that mean, pastor? Well, when the article is missing, it emphasizes the living quality and divine character of Jesus Christ, okay? So Peter intentionally, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, left out the definite article so that when his readers would read it, they would understand, hey, we're not just talking about any stone, we're talking about Jesus, we're talking about God, we're talking about divinity here. And so Jesus is the the core focus of this idea of a living stone. Jesus is also the source of all life. Remember the words that he spoke in John chapter 14 when Jesus was teaching his disciples about the future? There's some amazing things that we learned. John 14 here, starting with verse 1. If you want to turn there, you can. We're going to read the first six verses. John 14, 1 through 6. Uh, Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. We're all looking for peace, aren't we? Right? So Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, as I said, there's some pretty amazing things in these first in these first six verses of chapter 14. We're not going to spend a lot of time looking at all of them, but let me just point them out to you. First of all, we see that Jesus claims to be, and we know that he is, uh, peace. He says, let not your heart be troubled. We live in tumultuous times. And if even if you'd put COVID aside, the times we live in are not peaceful. I mean, just the other day, our president had an hour-long conversation with the president of Russia because Russia is amassing troops, 90,000 of them, on the border of Ukraine. Now, why in the world would he put 90,000 troops on the border of Ukraine? It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out something's happening there, okay? Is that, and is that a sign of peace? No, it's not a sign of peace. But Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. It doesn't matter how many Russian troops are bordering Ukraine. It doesn't matter what's going on in the Middle East. It doesn't matter what's happening in other places around the world. Let not your heart be troubled, 
well, why don't I, why shouldn't I be troubled? It, it's, it doesn't look good around here. Well, because he gives us assurances. He gives us comfort. He gives us hope. He tells us, listen, you believe in God. If you believe in God and you believe in Jesus Christ and you know Christ as your Savior, you have nothing to be worried about. And it's reinforced by the fact that you know that this same God that you know and believe in, he's in control of all things. He is the sovereign creator of the universe. And talking about assurances, he says, listen, he said, in my father's house are many rooms. Jesus spoke to the fact that there is a place in heaven for all that God has called to be part of his family. It doesn't matter if it happened on the first day of Pentecost when the church began or it's 2,000 years later, God is still saving people. And everyone that he saves, he has a place for them in heaven. In my Father's house are many rooms. I'm telling you the truth. It's interesting that he speaks of the future when he speaks of peace. He understands that in this world, we may not have peace. Peace is an elusive thing. In fact, the devotional that I read this morning talked about that very thing, that peace is not easy to find in the world, has never been easy to find. Even in times when we think we're at peace, there's still inner turmoil going on in the lives of countless numbers of people around the world, sometimes even ourselves. He also speaks of certainty. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and if I go, what's the next phrase? I will come again. Oh, man. Jesus says, I'm going, but don't worry. I'm coming back. I'm coming back to get you. I'm coming back to take you with me. Now, you know what he's talking about here, right? He's talking about the rapture. Now, some people will discount that truth. Some people will say, oh, come on. There's no such thing as a rapture. Do you really believe in the rapture? Absolutely. 100%. I believe in the rapture of the church. I believe that Jesus is coming back in the clouds and he will catch us up and we will go to be with him forever. That is, according to Paul in Titus, our blessed hope. The glorious appearing of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Pastor, how do you know that in John 14 he's talking about the rapture? Couldn't it be his second coming? Well, I've read all of John. I've read of all of John 14. And you know what? In John 14, there's no discussion, there's no statement, there's no talk about judgment. That's how I know he's talking about the rapture and not his second coming. At the rapture, we're going to be caught up and we're going to meet Jesus face to face. Yes, we'll stand before him at the judgment seat of Christ, but there's no judgment or there's no condemnation there at that judgment seat. Because God has already dealt with that. The thing that is done there is there's, there's the determination of whether I did it for me or if I did it for God. But he's going to welcome me into his heaven, to his home, and he's going to let me live there forever with him for all of eternity. When he comes back for his second coming, can I tell you something? He's coming back to judge the world. It's not going to be a pleasant time. He is going to rule, he is going to reign, and there's not going to be any nonsense put up with. 
<laughs> I used to have a friend in South Africa who said, when, when Jesus is ruling on the throne of, of, of David, you better not steal anybody's bicycle. You better live according to the, the, the precepts and the commands that Jesus set forth. Otherwise, it's going to be swift and, and decisive judgment. He's not messing around. Okay? That's how we know John 14 is the rapture. There's no judgment. He's taking us home to live in the place that he has prepared for us. Hallelujah! We don't have to worry about it. We don't have to fret about it. If I go, I will come again and receive you to myself. This passage in John 14 is a passage of hope and comfort for those who know Jesus as their Savior. We also find comfort in this text. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. The way, there's no other way to heaven except through Jesus Christ. You can't get to the Father without going through Jesus Christ. You can't sneak around the side. You can't dig a hole underneath. You can't jump over top. There is no way to get to heaven except through the Father, or except through Jesus Christ. He says, I am the way. He also says, I am the truth. Anyone that claims to have a path to peace, a path to the Father, a path to heaven that does not include Jesus Christ, don't believe them. I remember one time, I guess it's been a long enough time now, um, that a president of ours, you've got to go back three or four of them at least, stood up on, the, on a platform and said, there are many ways to God. <laughs> and I appreciated that president until he said that. There are many ways to God. My friends, there, are, there is not many ways to God. There is one. And Jesus says it right here. I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is only one way to God, and that is through Jesus Christ. If somebody tries to tell you there's a different way, like if you fly, your, if you fly a plane into a building and, and for your cause, you can get to paradise, you can get to heaven. No, you can't. You know where you're going if you do something like that? To hell. There's no paradise waiting for you. You see, there is one way, and that way is the way of truth through Jesus Christ. There's one means to eternal life and to real joy in this life, and that is through a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. He is indeed the living stone. But you know what? This same Jesus is also the rejected stone. You might scratch your head on that one for a little bit. The people who see him as the living stone are not the ones who reject him completely and totally forever. In spite of all that Jesus has done for us, in spite of all that he has accomplished, all the truth he has communicated, the world wants nothing to do with our Savior. And that's a sad fact. That's a sad truth. As good as Jesus is for everyone, there's people that don't want him. That doesn't make sense but that's because their spiritual hearts are darkened. And until the Holy Spirit enlightens that, there's really no hope for them. Matthew 21, verse 42, Jesus is quoting Psalm 118. He says, 
Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. You see, that's the problem with religion. Religion tries to come up with their own answers and their own solution. Religion seeks to do what is best for those in charge of their religion. Christianity is where God seeks to do what is best for his children, for his creation, and that which brings glory to himself. That's the difference. Every religion that has been established outside of Christianity is not looking out for the betterment of people. It's looking out for the betterment of self. Christ, God, is always looking out for his creation. Why do you think he came down from heaven on that day when Adam and Eve partook of the tree of of knowledge in the garden? He came down because he wanted to do what was best for them. He wanted to bring about reconciliation for them. God sent his son Jesus to this earth. It wasn't for God. God didn't need to do that for himself. He knew he needed to do that for us, to bring about reconciliation for anyone who calls on the name of the Lord. He was the rejected stone by men. It gets better, though. uh, He's also the chosen stone. This Jesus, this divine stone, is the chosen stone. Even though the world and mankind have rejected him, they want nothing to do with him, God has made him the chief cornerstone. God the Father has chosen him. He is God's chosen means and the only way for lost man to be redeemed. Jesus, the chosen stone. Peter also says, this man who knows stones, he says that Jesus is the precious stone. He is the stone of extreme value. We could actually say he is the stone with the most value or the most extreme value. You know what? It doesn't get any better than this stone, Jesus. Why? Because this stone is God. This stone is divine. We just celebrated Christmas, and we, lots of, we got lots of presents, and some of you might say, well, this is my best present. This is my most favorite present. This is the one that costs the most. Some might be saying, man, that's the present I spent the most money on, okay? Um, but you know what? Jesus is the most precious. There's nothing that compares in value to this stone. You know what? This is a hallelujah-worthy stone, one that makes us right before God. He's the precious stone. Peter knew this stone probably better than most. How do we know this? Well, you may remember the conversation that Jesus had with his disciples when they were walking in a region known as Caesarea Philippi. This area, Caesarea Philippi, was a very rocky place. There were stones all over the place. And as they're walking through this region, Jesus says to his disciples, he says, I have a question for you. Okay, Jesus, what's your question? Question was, who do men say that I am? And the disciples told him what they heard, what the buzz was in the communities, uh, what their friends were saying about Jesus. And then Jesus says, okay, who do you 
say that I am. There might have been a moment of silence there, kind of an awkward silence. And then Peter, he never seems to be at a loss for words, right? Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Can I tell you? Well, Jesus actually tells us that Peter didn't come up with that in his own self. Jesus says, Peter, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You see, Peter's answer to this question presents to us this amazing truth that, of who Jesus is. And Jesus said, you're blessed, Peter. You're blessed because God has shown you shown you this, you little stone, you little tiny pebble that you are, God has shown you this bedrock on which I will build my church. Jesus was the big stone, the big rock, the chief cornerstone, if you will, that the church was and is now being built upon. Jesus is the precious stone, the cornerstone, the most valuable stone. He is indeed the living stone. So if we move from verse 4 to verse 5, we see something else. Uh, And let me just read verse 5 to you. It says here, You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What do we see here in verse 5? We see a dedicated stone. A dedicated stone. You also as living stones. Peter reminds us that Jesus is the cornerstone and he moves on from that to let us know that we are also stones being used in the building process dedicated stones. A bit of a comparison contrast going on here. Peter previously stated that Jesus was the living stone, the source of all life. He's where life begins. Paul reminds us of the difference between Jesus being a living stone and us being living stones that have come to the living stone. Okay, Paul tells us what in, in Ephesians chapter 2, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. In verse 5 of that same chapter, he says, even when you were dead in your trespasses, you were made alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You see, we were stone dead, if you will, until we came to the living stone who made us alive. The meaning of the word of living stones in verse 5 is to be alive. In verse 4, it was the living one who is the source of all life. You see, we don't have life in ourselves. When we come to God outside of Jesus Christ, we come to him first as dead. And he brings us life. He gives us new life. See, we have to come to the source of life, the living stone, before we can get life and become a living stone stone, small l. The meaning of the word living stones, as I said, is to be alive. 
So here's what it is. We are coming to him as the living stone, as ones who have been given life. Praise God for that very life. You see the cause and effect situation going on here. We were dead. The living stone gave us life, made us alive. Thank you, Jesus, for that new life. As we continue on in verse 5, we see some things. We see, first of all, the work done in us. He says that we are being built up a spiritual house. It's important to note here that this is not a work that we are doing. This is a work that the master builder is doing. This is a work that the one who said, I will build my church, is doing. We living stones are being used for what stones should be used for, to build a building. Here's the picture. You and I are stones that have been chosen by the master builder to be used in a specific project. It's kind of like we might not so much identify with stones in the building project because we don't usually do that very much anymore. But when, when we had all of the two-by-fours delivered here to build this building, I remember being, I think it was in this very room with Brent, and we were going through the two-by-fours, looking at them to see if they were warped or twisted. Because they came up, we got hundreds of them at a time, and they're all wrapped together, strapped together. You cut the strap, and it goes, pop! And some of those boards just start to take on their own shape. Okay. Some of them were warped and twisted and no good that we couldn't use. We set them aside. But we specifically chose out the ones that we wanted. And the ones that we didn't want, we, we rejected them. We sent them back. Okay? A stone is the same way. You have this whole big pile of stones. And the master builder is taking each stone and looking at each stone saying, yes, yes. No, no not that, that one. No, I don't want that one either. And he, he continues to choose them. For what purpose? To be used in the building of the building. The dead stones are set aside. The living stones are brought into the picture. You and I are being used in the building process. The stone in and of itself may not look that impressive. But when it takes its spot in the building as determined by the master builder, wow, it's amazing. It's a perfect fit. And you know what it results in? It results in a masterpiece at the hands of the master builder. So you and I, in and of ourselves, not much. But when we all come together for the honor and the glory of God, for him to use in his purpose, his desire as he's planned it all out, it's God's masterpiece. How amazing is that? So we are being built as a spiritual house. We're also a holy priesthood, Peter says. Now this is important. God did not make us alive to sit back and do nothing. He made us alive to be involved in the work that he is doing. Let's take a brief look at scripture and see how scripture instructs us in the way 
that we do these priestly duties. We're going to take a look at a couple of different passages of Scripture. Um, We're not going to turn there. I'm just going to give them to you. You can write them down and and then read them afterwards because our time is, is, is running away from us. In Hebrews chapter 13, verses 15 and 16, we see that part of the priestly business that we are involved in is pleasing the Lord with how we do life. The priests were supposed to be pleasing to the Lord in the way they lived their lives and served God. You and I as priests, we must be pleasing to the Lord in how we do life. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. As priests, you know what we do? We present ourselves to God for his use and for his glory. In Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, we see that one of the things that priests are supposed to do is to proclaim the praises of the one who has called us. We praise God, and we do it as often as we can. In First Peter chapter 3, we'll eventually get to this passage of Scripture in our study in First Peter, but in First Peter chapter 3, verse 15, we see that you and I are responsible to present a defense of the truth. We present a defense of the truth. In other words, when we have the opportunity, we tell others about the truth, and we stand up for the truth, and we defend the truth. We go to battle for the truth. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. You know that passage of scripture. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are as priests performing acts in accordance with our calling. We do what God has called us to do. And you know what? If you're not doing what God's called you to do, that doesn't get done. Because God prepared them beforehand for you to do those works. So we got to figure out what are we supposed to be doing for God. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, you know these verses too probably. It says, um, yep. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? For you're not your own, but you're bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your, in your spirit, which are his. In other words, as priests, we have to prioritize a lifestyle that honors God. We prioritize a lifestyle. We put God first in our life. Now, you might be a bit confused because we find this in the section where we talk about the work that is done in us. You might be thinking, aren't I I supposed to be doing those things? Well, these would appear to be works that are done to us. But when we do them as works that we present to God, if I do these as works in and of myself, if I try to please the Lord with myself, if I try to present myself to God for for my own use, you know what? I fall short. But when God does these works through me, when the Holy Spirit prompts me to praise God, when the Holy Spirit says, you need to go do this, when the Holy Spirit directs me in this path and and encourages me to do this, I remember talking to Bill before they left. It was probably a couple months before they left. He said, Pastor, I I just have to do this. I, I have to do this. I've never been outside of New York State for an extended period of time in my life. But God wants me to go to Ohio. I know the Holy Spirit's leading me there. Should give you a chance to tell us what he's doing there. Um, but you see, when the Holy Spirit directs, when God leads you there, you got to do it. 
But if I try to do it in and of myself, it falls short. It doesn't work. It's, it's not what God wants me to do for the purpose he wants me to do it. These must be done as works that God does in and through us. In fact, we can't effectively do these works in our own strength. We also see in this text the worship that is done by us. We see the work that is done in us, and then we see that worship is done by us. Let us not forget that you and I have a response in all of this. Our response is to worship our great God. Peter knew about worshiping God, and he encouraged all of the followers of Jesus to worship as well. He tells us that we are to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. We're not going to get too deeply into this this morning because we're going to address it again later on. In fact, next week we'll look more in depth to these things because Peter brings them back up to us again when he tells us that we are priests in service to the Most High God. But let me introduce them to you quickly this morning. As a priest, you and I, we have direct access to God. There's no need for a mediator or a go-between. As a believer priest, we have access to the very throne room of God. The writer of Hebrews says, let us come boldly into the throne of God that we may find grace and help in time of need. You and I, we have every right and the responsibility to be going into the throne room of God on a regular basis. Aren't you glad it's not just once a year? We can do it over and over and over and over again. As a priest... We do offer spiritual sacrifices, not for salvation, but as a result of our salvation, almost as it were proving to others around us that we indeed have been born again. These sacrifices are offered in faith because of our redemption. Here are some things that we might offer. We might offer prayer. We might offer praise. We might offer thanksgiving. We might offer repentance. We might offer justice, kindness, love. Those are things that we can offer as redeemed priests in worship to our great God. As priests, we declare the truth. This is part of the great, fulfilling the Great Commission. Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples. You can't make disciples without proclaiming the truth, without declaring the truth, without telling others about Jesus Christ and what he did and how he did it for me and he wants to do it for you. And he wants you to be part of his family. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations. We can't do it without proclaiming the transformational truth that God brings across our path. As priests, we are to promote reconciliation. There's a big one. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18, Paul makes that very clear to his readers. In verse 17, he's talking about, we've all become new creatures in Christ. The old things are passing away. Behold, all things have become new. And then he goes on to say, all, all this, becoming new creatures in Christ, is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. But he doesn't stop there. You know what he says after that? He says, and has given to us, those who are new creatures in Christ, those who have been reconciled, he has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, as our worship, it's part of our responsibility, it's part of our job to help others know how to become reconciled to God. That's the ministry of reconciliation. What a great way to start out 2022, and I'm sorry it wasn't really any shorter. 
But hey, why start off 2022 with something that you can't keep up throughout the rest of the year, right? (laughs) But it is a great way to start the year by thinking about what God has called us to do. Many people this time of year are making resolutions. The thing about resolutions is that they are seldom kept. The New York Post reports did a survey of 2,000 Americans. They found that the average American kept their resolutions till February 1st. That's the average American. But here's the staggering thought. 68% of Americans that make resolutions don't get that far. They don't even keep them for a month. You see, it's not about making resolutions for the child of God. But instead, it's about resolving to be committed to the cause of Christ. It's about committing our lives to do what God has called us to do and equipped us to do and empowers us to do. He doesn't call us to do anything that he hasn't given us the ability to perform and the power to do it. So may may 2022 be a year of growth for us as living stones that have been made alive by the living stone. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning.